Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Cray America. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Cramer. When the obvious strikes, you need to have a plan. Today, the obvious, a polished new Fed chief named Jerome Powell went to Capitol Hill, answered pretty much every question in a thoughtful and logical way, and yet stocks just cratered. <laughs> Dow sinking 299 points, S&P falling 1.27%, NASDAQ losing 1.23%. Did Powell somehow blow his first appearance, talking about how a stronger economy might lead to more aggressive rate hikes? No. But it was a solid excuse to ring the register on some stocks after a remarkable run since the bottom. If Powell's not the culprit, then we've got to ask ourselves what's really going on. Long story short, the bond market. When the yield of the benchmark 10-year Treasury moves toward 3%, the volatility index spikes and stocks, they tumble. When the 10-year goes toward 2.8%, the VIX declines and stocks rally. House of pleasure. In any other environment, I wouldn't even bother mentioning the volatility index. But because of all these instruments designed to trade it, the VIX acts as an accelerant, like throwing gasoline in the flames of a sell-off. So when the yield on the 10-year climbed to as high as 2.93% today, the VIX spiked and stocks, well, stocks rolled over. But you know what? After listening to Warren Buffett yesterday, I want to inject some common sense light into the darkness of today's session. Here's the thing. When the economy gets hot, a responsible Fed chairman needs to talk about raising rates in order to help tamp down potential inflation. That's half the reason the Fed exists. So far, Powell's doing everything right. Now, there's a widespread perception that the 10-year moving from 28 to 3% is really, really important. 3% is the reason to sell, while 2.8% is the reason to buy. That, in a word, is ridiculous. As Buffett reminded us yesterday, stocks are simply so much more valuable than bonds, even with the 10-year north of 3%. So you shouldn't be reassessing equities with every tick. Buffett understands that stocks as an asset class are very cheap compared to bonds right now, or really any other form of competition. When he thinks bonds are the better bargains, well, you know what? He buys bonds. But that won't be the case anytime soon. He just told us that. Hmm. Common sense. How bizarre. 
When money managers and pundits talk about markets on a daily basis, we tend to be in horse race mode. And that's not helpful. Here's something you might, you might not know. I used to dig the ponies, cut my teeth at Suffolk Downs, helping to pay my way through Harvard Law. I loved the way the horses came out of the gate. I went gaga at the first turn. I thrilled if my horse bided its time, waiting out the rabbits. The next turn, what can I say? Back and forth and back and forth. Final and home stretch, photo finish, just exhilarating. The way people in the media talk about it, you think three rate hikes and four rate hikes are the names of horses that are neck and neck. And the fate of the whole stock market depends on which one wins and then which one places. But you know what? When we play the ponies, we call it gambling. Minute differences in time, down to the wire, down to the nose, they actually do matter. It's zero sum. If you bet on three rate hikes and four rate hikes wins, well, you lose your whole wager. We call them rip-ups. That's not how this works in the real world, which is why the horse race commentary, well, you know what? I'd like to, re- to leave that horse race commentary on the track. If Powell thinks we need four hikes because the economy is so hot, we'll get them. If the data cools, we'll get three. Speculating on the number of Fed tightenings may be a decent parlor game. But as Warren Buffett has told us, it's not much more than that. Granted, he said that in the distant past, a whole news cycle ago, yeah, yesterday. Well, but his words still ring true 24 hours later. Sure, we have thoroughbred stocks. We got maiden claimers and stakes races. Again, though, as someone who wrote sports for a living, the racing commentary I hear often, well, it it does one thing and only one thing. It makes you feel like you need to bet on a new horse each time. Ten races a session! I like to step back and say, wait, you know what? We'll let the horse race play out and see what the gamblers give us. So we get a pullback like we had today. I see it as a chance for reflection. Finally, we may have an opportunity to evaluate the individual names that have come down and buy the good ones into weakness. Now, sometimes a company's stock gets knocked down because management decides they need to sacrifice short-term performance for potential long-term gains. We've been watching as Broadcom, one of the premier semiconductor companies of our age, tries to buy Qualcomm so far with mixed results. Qualcomm shareholders are proving to be a rested bunch, though. And I, if for all we know, they might, at the right price, vote to turn the company over to Broadcom, which would cause the latter stock to soar. Or today, Comcast, the parent company of this network and a holding of my charitable trust, it took a similar path with an attempt to acquire a thing called Sky, a largely U.K.-based satellite company. Murdoch's own 39% of Sky. They've been trying to buy the rest with a bit of uh, on the table as part of a Fox larger deal with Disney. There are many permutations to these machinations, too many to mention here. But both Disney and Comcast want this asset, so I bet a bidding war does ensue. What matters to us, though, is that Comcast stock is worth less than it was yesterday because of something it might do in the next year, which may or may not bring larger rewards for shareholders. Now, we're willing to embrace the short-term pain for ActionAlertsPlus.com. I told club members that. But why? Well, Comcast has proven to be... It's, been, it's a proven winner. We're not going to abandon it now. Of course, Disney's another Kramer fave, and it too got clobbered. Comcast's move reduced the value of Disney's stock short term, given that they'll either need to pay more for Sky or, or, or give up on having it altogether. 
uh, this whole Fox issue becomes more expensive for Disney. But long-termers don't despair. Disney is still a fabulous story with or without the British satellite TV business and its ancillary uh, distribution in Europe. Most importantly, though, where should we be bargain hunting in the wake of today's sell-off and not the ones that are, let's say, uh, self-appointed bargains? I spent the whole day pondering this question, and I watched the screen, and I came up short. The stocks that have really run, the big multinational industrials, the financials, the tax and the defense stocks, they didn't really come down to levels that I find attractive. But the drugs and the oils and the consumer packaged good plays, which have been out of favor and were lucky enough to be dragged higher by the most recent bounce from the bottom, they fell harder. But they aren't more attractive than they were yesterday or the day before. They remain too expensive given the risk. Oh, and of course, after the close, Celgene, one of my old favorite biotechs from the old days, not anymore, and NeoG Resources, a very good uh, oil and gas company, broke down. The echo chamber grew louder. In short, as much as I want to say that this was a consequential session with a notable decline that had to give you some real bargains, I didn't see any. Trust pulled the trigger on nothing. You know, when I learned to handicap, the most important lesson I received, and I was taught by the best, was that on some days, whether it be at Suffolk or Santa Anita or Aqueduct or AC, there were simply no races that day worth betting on. There was not a single horse race that made sense to go to the window and plunk down some hard-earned bucks. The risk rewards weren't good. There were, were no anomalies. So you just sat out there, and yes, in my youth, you enjoyed a good cigar. The bottom line, it's been 40 years since I had a good stogie outside at the paddock or the finish line, but I still know when to enjoy a day at the proverbial races and do nothing. Today was indeed one of those days. You just needed to sit on your hands and wait for another day, another chance, a better opportunity. Sometimes that's all there is to it. Let's go to Adelaide in Alabama, please. Adelaide. Hey, Jim, listen. Thank you for spreading your enthusiasm for the Eagles to your fan base. My well, husband you know and what? I it's have... coach, it's owner, it's general manager, it's executive vice president. It's the whole gang, and they it's make the me happy. Every, I think about it the moment I wake up every single day and when I go to bed. How can I help? Well, listen, I read in your book, Get Rich Carefully, about your concept of trading around a core position. Right. And I bought Southwest Airlines in '09. I've kept it over the years and kind of just have a feel for the trading range of that stock. I know you've had some concerns about the airline industry and the resurgence of competition and possible price wars, right. but I feel like Southwest is a buy down here at 58. I wondered what you think about that. It's funny. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about Warren Buffett. He seems to have been forgotten in the 24-hour periods as he spoke. And he was talking about buying a whole airline. I got to tell you, you want to buy a whole airline, you, you buy love. Love is not for sale my way. That's the symbol LUV. I think you've got a horse sense method of making money. In the meantime, I think that Gary Kelly, who's the chairman and CEO, has done very well for shareholders. I would own the stock here and buy more if it goes lower. All right, sure, today was gloomy. Hey, I'm not denying that. But there was nothing at attractive levels just yet. And sometimes it's best to let the horse races play out wait for the right opportunity. Oh, man, tonight, one company just ignited the rest of the tech sector. Could it also present a buying opportunity? I'll reveal the name just ahead. Then Wayfair's tagline is a zillion things in home. But investors seem to prefer a few million in profit. Does the company still have the potential after journey's decline? And when it comes to the market's recent sell-off, is there a lot more 
blame to go around. I'm tackling the technicals to find out. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Sometimes a really good quarter will sneak up on you when the company in question gets some of the credit it deserves. Sometimes it's not enough. That's what tonight's piece is about. That's how I feel about the numbers that HP Inc., led by the fabulous CEO Dion Weisler, one of the nicest guys I know in business, delivered last week. Oh, sure, the stock ran in response. It had one of the better performances on an already superb day for the averages. And it's not like this was the first good quarter from HP Inc. Your stock doesn't go from $16 to $23 in a year unless you've got something sustainable going on. But there's so much more to this story, which is why I think the stock has even more room to run, and I come to praise it tonight. So let me unpack what's happening at this very large company with a relatively small $38 billion market cap. First of all, remember that when the old Hewlett Packard broke itself up, splitting in 2015 uh, into HP Inc., which got the PC and printing divisions, and HP Enterprise, which got the business-facing stuff, Wall Street viewed HP as a total dog. The PC was supposed to be dead, wasn't it? And who even cares about printers anymore? Nearly everyone expected this to be a growth challenge company with a solid dividend. It wasn't the one that people wanted. They wanted the other. More on that in a second. Oh, HP Inc. is now giving you double-digit sales and earnings growth with a billion dollars worth of free cash flow, which a lot of it they return to you as shareholders. It's the undisputed market share leader in the PC space. It now controls 23% of the market. Come on, that's huge. Up 170 basis points from last year. That's staggering, especially when you consider that the personal computer business is actually growing again. It almost makes you feel like we're back in the 90s when the triumphant of Compact, Hewlett Packard, and Dell ruled the industry. And look, this is not some temporary spurt. There's sustainability here. HP Inc. has now delivered five consecutive quarters of revenue growth. In fact, this amazing quarter was up against a tough comparison, 10% growth from a year ago. So that's no mean feat. But it's just it's not just about run-of-the-mill personal computers. The company's printing division is showing excellent growth. HP's gaming business, where they make, they make high-end machines, powered, of course, by NVIDIA, and designed to run the coolest games at the best-looking settings, it's doing quite well. Consider these numbers, right? Consumer growth, 13%. Commercial growth, 16%. No Books 14%, desktops 17%, workstations up 11%. Wow! On top of that, there's the 3D printing kicker. Remember when everyone was so excited about 3D printing? Well, it's a business now. It's a business right here. HP's in full commercial production with machines that can do actual cost-effective three-dimensional modeling and manufacturing. Two of that's a $12 trillion market waiting to happen, and it's growing like wildfire because once you've been making enough products, buying a 3D printer is much cheaper than paying people to do the same thing with old-fashioned tools. Of course, it's not game-changer yet. There are other players in the space. But when it comes to commercial production 3D... 
HP is the leader. More important, I don't think many investors are focused on this business line. It barely mentioned a single question, a very truncated conference call. How has HP turned itself into a consistent grower? Some of it's pure ingenuity and design. As Dion Weissler told you on the call, if you look at the personal computer five years ago, it's probably unrecognizable from the products that we make today. Or as the always strong chief financial officer, Kathy Lesjak, still going out and pointing out the old PCs are ugly. Now, I can attest to that, people. I love my Elite Book with its Elite Core 17 V Pro. It bends. It lets you scroll up and down by touchscreen. I have to admit, I absolutely love it when it can do that. Uh, it is just so, so exciting. Uh, what an amazing feeling that is. The resolution is gorgeous, and yet it, it's both light and strong. The darn thing gives my Apple a run for its money in many ways. Sometimes it even exceeds it. Now, the analysts are always nitpickers. They're far more focused on the gross margins, not as great as they would like in currency gains. Why not better give the dollars uh, weakness? to why, why isn't it working more for them? But here's the takeaway. Uh, it's something that helped the whole tech cohort last week and will continue to give it a boost. Raw costs, namely the higher prices of DRAMs, one of the basic building blocks of personal computers, are going higher. Just last October, at HP's analyst meeting, the company forecasted the DRAM prices, which have been much stronger for longer than anyone I know expected, would level off. I figured they were going from headwind to tailwind, frankly. It didn't happen, though. And now the company says DRAM pricing could stay strong all year. That's a remarkable change in stance, and it's why the stock of Micron, the DRAM maker, has been surging, even managing to rally on an ugly day like today. Sure makes me feel better about buying the stock of Micron, symbol MU, with its shares trading about five times earnings. The stock is ridiculously cheap if DRAM pricing holds up because that price earnings multiple suggests more investors believe the estimates will have to come down. But it sure doesn't feel that way if you listen to that HP call. An analyst tried to get the company to go on record saying that NAND could go higher flash memory. Uh, they, they think flash drives are going to be strong, but the, the company didn't bite. Still, I think that's why you saw some nice moves in Western Digital, as well as semiconductor capital equipment plays like Glam Research and Applied Materials. Some of these gains were repealed today, and these stocks are definitely getting cheaper as they go lower. Finally, there's the elephant in the room, cell phones versus PCs. Weisler told us that, I quote, we see the mobile phone industry, we've seen the mobile phone under pressure, which he says creates capacity for investment in other areas, namely what HP Inc. makes. That's crucial because so many tech stocks feel like they've been held back by the slowing of the smartphone market. But the rest of tech actually continues to grow. You just need to think outside of the cell phone box. Those pondering the zero-sum nature of what you hear out of that Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, consider this call. It matters. Oh, one last thing. Hewlett-Packard Enterprise reported some incredibly strong numbers of its own last Thursday, hence why the stock surged a remarkable 15% over the last three sessions, making a new all-time high. This was a huge top and bottom line beat, with a very bullish guidance and a 50% dividend boost for good measure. These were game-changing numbers, and it makes me feel like now former CEO Meg Whitman left her successor, Antonio Neri, with everything he needs to make this story work. As Neri says, they have the right strategy, improved execution, and good revenue growth across every business segment. What's more? What's more to like? I don't know. You can't get much more. Now, it's been a tough slog for HP since the breakup. But now both parts of the old Hewlett Packard seem to finally be firing on all cylinders. Bottom line, when it comes to technology, hardware is back in style. The tech that's on your desk at work and in your briefcase, devices that look and act nothing like you ever even imagined a few years ago, and the Internet of Things are where the action is, which is why HP Inc. and HPE continue to climb today in spite of a very ugly tape. One last thing. 
Congratulations to Meg Whitman for doing so much to unlock value. You are truly one of the good ones, and we salute you for all you've done for Hewlett Packard shareholders. All right, much more Mad Money Head, including my take on Wayfair. Does the stock need a remodel after last week's decline? Then I'm taking a look at a bigger picture when it comes to the market's recent blow up when I go off the charts. Good to have after today, right? And talk about a miracle on 34th Street. I'll tell you what to make a Macy's move higher today. So stick with Kramer. Now that we're no longer being preempted by the Olympics every night, it's time to play catch up, starting with the most stunning stories from the past couple of weeks. And I haven't been able to tell you about them. I'm talking about stories like the jaw dropping collapse of Wayfair. Wayfair, the online furniture kingpin. When I went to Italy, Wayfair was flying high. This was a red hot stock. Sizzling more than doubled last year, but barely got dinged by the most recent market wide sell off. Then last Thursday morning, Wayfair reported a distinctly suboptimal quarter, and the darn thing just gets crushed, losing 22% of its value that day. Ouch! Still, the stock had run so much in recent months that even after this catastrophic decline, Wayfair's really going back to where it was trading in mid-December. So we're left with two questions. What in the world happened to Wayfair? I know a lot of you follow this stock. And could the stock actually be worth buying down at these levels? Or is it too toxic to touch? First, though, let me set the scene because this has long been one of the most controversial stocks I have ever seen. Wayfair is the largest online furniture retailer operating through four different sites. The eponymous Wayfair.com, Jossen, Maine, All Modern, Birch Lane, and Perigold. For years, this company has been growing like a weed. And for some reason, it seems to attract fanatics on both sides. You've got a rabid group of marauding bears who absolutely hate Wayfair with the fire of a thousand suns. And you've got a stamping herd of equally committed bulls. In short, the stock is eagerly incredibly polarizing. For years, and especially in 2017, the bulls were triumphant, but the bears simply refused to surrender. They dug their heels in. At that disappointing quarter last Thursday, though, the shoe is now on the other foot. The skeptics control the field while the believers, well, the believers, they cower in terror. All right, so what went wrong here? Because, boy, do I ever love these two-sided issues. The truth is, in absolute terms, the numbers Wayfair reported last week weren't really that bad. But Wall Street doesn't care about absolute terms. In this business, everything is relative. Going into the quarter, this stock had run up more than 19% year-to-date, 19%. And remember, that was after climbing 129% in 2017, a true champ. When a company stock rallies that hard going into earnings, you know I often say it's setting itself up for failure. I call this the problem of great expectations, a term coined by Dickens, one of the few novelists who rivals the redoubtable Stephen King. A great quarter won't do much to move the needle because the stock has already gained so much in anticipation, whereas a not-so-great quarter, well, it can be devastating. In other words, Wayfair, the stock, was priced for perfection going into the quarter. And the actual results were far from perfect. I mean, not terrible, but nowhere near as good as they needed to be to keep investors happy. So let me walk you through the good, the bad, and the ugly of these numbers so you understand the challenging natures of some of the gut-wrenching stories out there that you're often attracted to. Now, there's plenty of good here. Wayfair delivered 
were much stronger than expected revenues, up 46% year-to-date. I mean, that's huge. Its total orders increased by 31%. Yippee! It had 11 million active customers. That's up 33%. Nice customer acquisition. Plus, the average customer spent 6.8% more than in the same period last year. On that pastiche alone, you want to buy. But on the other hand, there was plenty of bad. Wayfair's earnings came in weaker than expected, with the company losing 58 cents a share. Wall Street was looking for just a 52-cent loss. The reason? Wayfair's gross margin, what they make after the cost of goods sold, came in lower than anticipated, down 110 basis points, year-over-year to 23.1%. Even though the company's got accelerating revenue growth, or ARG as we call it around here, thanks to the booming nature of the online furniture space, it's actually becoming less and less profitable on those sales. No good. How about the ugly? I got to tell you, ugly is the perfect word for Wayfair's guidance in its conference call commentary. The two most important parts of the equation. While the company's revenue forecast for the next quarter was excellent, all right, the rest of the forecast gave the bears exactly what they needed to hear. The bulls love Wayfair for its rapid revenue growth that continues to accelerate, but the bears worry. They're fretting about profits, or really, frankly, the lack thereof. For years, these skeptics have been arguing that the business model is basically unsustainable because Wayfair needs to spend a fortune to lure in customers. Plus, if Amazon ever decides to really get into the furniture game, you know they're capable of getting into anything. They will be able to crush this company like a bug on a windshield. So when Wayfair gives very weak margin guidance and says their earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization, or EBITDA may come in, get this, negative next quarter, well, that's a victory for the skeptics. Even other management said some things in the conference call that really freaked out the shareholder base. The company says it sees advertising costs rising as a percentage of total revenue in the next quarter. Not good. And they're going to ramp up new hiring, a major expense. Worse still, Wayfair CEO Naraj Shah made it clear that 2018 is going to be an investment year. Wow. Look out, people. That's Wall Street code for, hey, look, we aren't going to make the money you thought we were. We're going to spend the money you thought we didn't need to spend. In other words, if you were hoping the company was going to turn the quarter on profitability sometime soon, don't hold your breath. Why was this day so devastating for the stock? Well, for most of last year, Wayfair seemed to be moving in the right direction on profitability. Since the fourth quarter of 2016, the company had been putting out positive adjusted earnings before interest tax depreciation, amortization, EBITDA, and its U.S. business. But in the latest quarter, we got an EBITDA decline. And that is something that, frankly, gives a beatdown to the bulls. Meanwhile, Wayfair's international revenue growth keeps decelerating, albeit from higher levels, and the foreign losses keep widening. Throwing all the commentary that suggests Wayfair will spend a lot of money next year, meaning near-term profitability is not on the table, and many investors simply become disillusioned, and they want to move on. Now, in the past, the stock has managed to power higher on the strength of revenue growth and management's vision. In fact, when Wayfair last reported in November, their losses were larger than expected. The stock got clobbered down 15% in one day. But as the market caught fire, people stopped caring. And as long as Wayfair has accelerating revenue growth, they're going to be believers. My view, the stock never should have run so much going into the quarter. But now that it's come down, I am hesitant to recommend it. The problem? As of now, the bull thesis has one prop, revenue growth. If Wayfair ever misses on that top line, 
its stock will be absolutely obliterated. Last week's hideous decline would look like a walk in the park in comparison. I don't think that's very likely, but that, the point is there's not much room for error here, even after the sell-off. Now, I'm not going to recommend shorting Wayfair either. I know a lot of people wish I did. If the stock comes down too much, it could conceivably attract a takeover bid from a deep-pocketed brick-and-mortar retailer looking maybe for more online exposure, like Wayfair. Way Walmart did with that Jet.com. I mean, companies, bricks-and-mortar, want to do this. But that's not a reason to buy it because companies rarely get takeover offers when their stocks are up nearly 100% in the past year and their fundamentals have clearly weakened. The bottom line, Wayfair is a textbook example of why I always tell you to stay away from battlegrounds. I believe in the online furniture business in general, but I have less conviction in Wayfair's business model in particular. At the end of the day, the juice just isn't worth the squeeze. I always like to say to you that when stocks go down, they get cheaper. But I need to add a caveat now. When stocks of companies with faltering fundamentals go down, joining the sellers sell, 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 may be the most intelligent thing to do. Let's go to Brett in Maryland. Brett. Hey, Jim. This is Brett from Baltimore, Maryland. And how are you, First Brett? Call here. Good. How are how you? About yourself, sir? Good. Pleasure to speak with you. Yes, Thanks for everything see. you did for us home gamers. Okay. Absolutely. I'm sorry you say that. Appreciate it. What's up? As a big golf fan, what do you think of Callaway Golf and their 15% stake in the company Top Golf? I'm looking to add to my position. Uh, you Thank know, we you. like it. We think golf is uh, uh, is relevant. We think that golf's doing a lot of good things, and this is a best way to play it. We've been looking at EPR, but it's got other aspects to it, and it's a REIT that make it so it's not as attractive as Eli, which is why we've been favoring the stock. Let's go to Allen in Florida, please. Allen. Jimmy, a world championship eagle booyah to you. It's never too late. I listened to it. Carl Cantanini gave me still one more mic'd up dialogue with uh, our fabulous coach Peterson. It made me laugh and happy on a down day. Let's go to work. Gotta love it. My question is about Roku. I recently listened to their conference call, and it seems like they got a lot of exciting things going on with their technology. Uh, They say as long as streaming video continues to grow, they should grow. They've performed very well since their IPO, but they got hammered after their last earnings call. Is this stock a buy? No, I don't want you to buy it because I fear a lot of competition. It initially wasn't there, and a lot of people felt, hey, you know what? We're home free. But when I see a great quarter, and I thought it was one, which then is met with this kind of decline, it makes me say, you know what? Let's let's pause for concern. Let's not do any buying. All right, I don't want your investments to be a battleground. A battleground like Verdun. Oh, I mean, sorry, Wayfair. Stay away from this one. It's just not worth it. Much more mad money ahead, including one of the quickest 10% declines in stock market history. Could worries about a broken market ring true? I'm going off the charts on a day like today. Don't we need that help? Then Macy's is higher today after strong 2017 and a very good beginning of this year. Has this brick-and-mortar giant found its footing? And all your calls rapid-fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. At this point, regular viewers know exactly what I think about the breakdown that started a month ago. What could have been a garden variety sell-off turned into a bloodbath, thanks to all these out-of-position hedge funds and neophyte traders who bet heavily against what's known as volatility, using borrowed money to trade VIX-related instruments that probably should never have been allowed to exist. 
But maybe that's not the whole picture. Maybe just maybe the market was already broken before the tsunami of forced selling happened, and then the subsequent rebound followed. At the very least, we need to consider the other side of the story, which is why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's a brilliant technician. She's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, and she's someone who writes with me at Real Money, the page side of the street.com. In Garner's view, there's a whole lot of blame to go around. It's not just the fault of foolish speculators who made big leverage bets that the market would stay calm and then were forced to sell common stocks and stock futures to meet the broker's margin calls. Garner thinks the market was already broken in early January. She believes the bulls were victims of their own complacency and irrational experience. What makes her say that? All right, let's go to the charts. Just take a look. These are really revealing. This is a daily chart of the E-mini S&P 500 futures. These trade 23 hours a day and thus give us a clearer picture of what happened. The key benchmark traveled from the 2400s in September. Okay, so we've got it right here uh, to the 2800s at the peak last month. And it was practically in a straight line, as you can see, uh, without any sort of even backing and filling. That's a monster move. And in Garner's opinion, the S&P was just as broken as it climbed relentlessly to new highs in January as it was... Broken air, broken air. Her reasoning is pretty simple. Asset prices aren't supposed to move straight up or straight down unless you have a sudden and dramatic change in the fundamentals. And yes, the big tax cut certainly counts as a big change. But even with tax reform, this was an extreme move. A logical, rational market should not keep going up and up and up or, or down and down and down on the same information. But since when has the stock market been logical? At the end of the day, this business comes down to decisions being made by human beings, and humans are emotional creatures. They're frail. When our emotions take over, we tend to throw reason and even sanity out the window. As far as Garner's concerned, that's the reason why this market both soared higher for much of January, fueled by our collective, collective euphoria, and then folded like a wet paper bag as that euphoria gave way to panic. Her evidence. Look at this darn chart. Despite the ridiculous seesaw action, the SP is almost right back to where it was at the end of 2017. It's up about 3%. In fact, Garner says you can make a decent case that the S&P never should have traded above 2730 in January. In fact, the moment we broke through that level, it pretty much broke much of all the rules of technical analysis, just like that. First of all, when the S&P started pushing up against that ceiling of resistance at the beginning of the year, uh, the relative strength index, or RSI, a key momentum indicator, it hit 80. That's an incredibly overbought reading. Remember, I told you I don't like that, indicating we come up too far too fast and we're due for a pullback. Yet the S&P then broke out above 2730 without even batting an eyelash. A few weeks later, the RSI surged to 90, an almost unheard of level for any asset class. And that's where we finally peaked. In Garner's view, these readings were classic signs of a broken market on the upside. Yet people were making money in stocks, didn't want to admit that anything was wrong, at least not until the pendulum started swinging the other way. Now, the S&P peaked on January 26 at 2,872. In less than two weeks, it had plunged to 2,532. And you know what? While the decline seemed crazy on the surface, Garner says this move made perfect sense from a technical perspective. The S&P tumbled down to the floor of support at its long-term trend line, and that's where it bottomed. In her view, it was the absurd run-up 
in the stock market that made the subsequent decline look so extreme. At this point, Garner thinks we're really kind of back where we should be with the S&P in the 2700s, and the relative strength index have settled back into nice neutral territory. All right, how about the longer-term weekly chart of the S&P 500? This really puts things in perspective. Before the big run-up in January, the S&P had been trading within a well-defined upturn ever since early 2016. Since then, each rally had stalled out when stocks became overbought at the high end of the channel. You'd think we'd get a garden variety pullback, and afterwards the S&P would resume the march higher. You see these things. Look at this. Perfect, right? But January, now January was different. Suddenly, the S&P pushed through the high end of its channel. The reason? In Garner's view, this was all about FOMO fear of missing out, and Moas, the mother of all short squeezes. New money piled into the market right here. The short sellers got crushed, and many were forced to cover a buyback stock to close out their positions, pushing us to incredibly high levels. On the weekly chart, the relative strength index, it also surged past 90, which, according to Garner, is the highest reading we've ever had for the S&P 500. This was a classic overbought scenario. When gravity finally reasserted itself, the S&P didn't break down to ridiculously low levels. It didn't even test the low end of the, uh, of the, of the upturn trend. But look at that. I mean, it didn't get down to the bottom channel. But because we were falling from such rarefied heights, the collapse felt almost apocalyptic. Here's the thing. If not for the huge run in the first three weeks of January, Garner doubts anyone would have even been talking about a broken market when we got hit with the inevitable sell-off. In the long run, she thinks the market worked exactly as it's supposed to. It forced out the obstinate bears, then washed out the euphoric bulls, and now it's back to healthy equilibrium. And now, how about this volatility trade that I keep talking about? I think the VIX-related ETFs and ETNs are a real problem. You know I want investigations of them. Uh, there's no real reason for these things to exist. I think they hurt regular, everyday mom-and-pop investors in their current form. But Garner does make a really good point. Betting against volatility is really just an extreme type of irrational exuberance because the VIX goes up when the market goes down. So check out this chart, okay? Put it in perspective. This is the VIX going back 30 years. The market generally works its way higher longer term, so most of, the, most of the time you can make steady money shorting the VIX, which is exactly why so many hedge funds and cockeyed optimists were doing it. However, look at these spikes. Wait, look what happens. When the VIX turns against you, it turns hard, and you can be wiped out overnight. Something Warren Buffett echoed the other day. Garner says this is a really dumb short. You have limited reward versus massive risk. Those are bad situations, people. More important for her, these VIX traders are the symptom, not the disease. The actual ailment is euphoria, which is why so many funds were foolish enough to make such a risky bet in the first place. Here's the bottom line. The charts, as interpreted by Carly Garner, suggest that this market is a lot less broken than it might seem. And that's very reassuring on an ugly day like today, even if I don't entirely agree about the causes of the big blow-up. Her work does make me want to embrace some, some of this market, but only on weakness after the incredible run we've just had. Wish there were more to it. But sometimes, as I said at the top of the show, you simply need to sit on your hands and wait for a better opportunity. Mad Money is back after the break. It is time! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Mike in New Jersey. Mike, 
It's Don. Great to have you back, Jim. Thank you. I just wanted to say that I'm a Patriot fan, but I'm glad for you and your father, whom I'm sure was watching. I know Pop was watching. I was wearing his Army jacket. I know it was happening. Thank you for that. How can I help? Okay. The stock I want to ask you about is a developer of wire-free charging technology. The symbol is W-A-T-T. Oh, I've looked at that one, and you're a Pat fan, so I'm going to save you some money. IVTI is my favorite in that area. Integrated device tech, uh, technology, they've been on a bunch of times. They're good people. Let's go to Mark in Wisconsin. Mark! Jim, thanks for taking my call. You my bet. stock is SEM Group, ticker SEMG. I was wondering what your thoughts oh, were. Oh, my, you know what? I am in a house of pain when it comes to anything related to this, this kind of a network of pipeline groups. And I'm not going to put you in there. Even though it yields eight, I cannot inflict pain on my friends. Let's go to Bernard in Florida. Bernard. Hi, Jim. How are you? I am good. How about you? Well, I'm after getting this, I'm great. Good, good. I've only I've been in the market only uh, three months. Okay. And I I picked the last stock, which was Texas Instruments. Look, Texas is very good now. People didn't really care for that last quarter. I think it's an Internet of Things play. Now you got to ride it out here because I know a lot of people feel the chart is broken. I don't think so. It's a good company. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. A turnaround is a beautiful thing to behold, especially on an ugly day. And that's exactly what happened at Macy's, the venerable department store chain. Today, the believers were rewarded with sharply better than expected earnings, a terrific outlook, and a 3.46% gain in their stock. So what happened here? And of course, more importantly, is it sustainable? To put it simply, the new CEO, Jeff Gannett, who took over less than a year ago, is apparently a bit of a miracle worker. He's made the stores look better. He's emphasized fashion. He's reinvented their loyalty program, which is working particularly well at the high-end platinum level. Many of the company's regular big spending customers have begun to feel slighted. That's over. He's expanded Macy's Backstage, the off-price store that's seen a giant, giant lift in sales, really kind of eye-opening. He's testing all new initiatives in 50 locations, and I'm particularly drawn to Market at Macy's, which is the retail pop-up boutique store within a store. Doing quite well. Customers came back to beauty, which includes high-margin perfume sales and prestige skincare. By the way, this is exactly what Estee Lauder told us when it reported. Meanwhile, dresses, fine jewelry, men's tailored clothing, coats, children's shoes, handbags, all doing better than expected, leaving Macy's with light inventories and therefore a lack of promotion. 
No discounting. In short, all systems go. But is it sustainable? Honestly, I think it is. First, Gannett told us the chain will be growing this year, and it's already racked up a strong January. It's been ages since we've heard that. Second, because of some success in omnichannel double-digit growth, I think Macy's has put up some defenses against the Amazon Death Star. Curated and personal shopping help, too. Amazon just doesn't have that. Now, when a retailer turns, as we saw with Kohl's, the comeback tends to last for a lot longer than many people expect, certainly longer than one quarter. A department store is a bit like a battleship. It takes ages to change course, but once it gets going, it feeds on its own momentum. More important, though, is something behind the scenes, something that caused me to recommend the stock when it fell below 20 last year, nine points ago. I'm talking about something mundane. I'm talking about the balance sheet. Gannett knows fashion, even his detractors will admit that. However, what people missed about him, particularly the bears who questioned the sustainability of Macy's dividend when its stock yielded 7.7%, is that Gannett cares passionately about fixing the darn balance sheet. He's weaned the company off its toxic addition to buying back its own stock, typically at much too high prices. It's a really bad habit that far too many retailers have gotten burned by. Instead, he's focused on buying back the company's debt. $950 million just retired. There's still more to do, but Connect's doing it. He's selling property using the extras from Brookfield, a real estate advisor. And I think the results have been spectacular with a lot more to come. I could see the stock getting a boost every time properties are sold, including a very valuable piece of real estate I've been eyeing in San Francisco. Plus, Macy's is almost done closing the underperforming stores. You know, in August of 2016, they slated 100 of these losers to be shuttered. And as of now, only 17 are still open. That means better gross margins ahead. As someone who grew up and cut teeth in retail, with my mom working at Litz and my dad at Gimbel's, slain, by the way, by Macy's, before embarking on a 50-year career selling boxes and bags to small stores in Philly, I was immediately impressed when I met with Gannett. But the doubters couldn't stop betting against Macy's. Maybe they should have spent more time listening and less time wagering. They would have heard an excellent story about what had to happen at Macy's in order to turn things around in the next few years. As it happens, Gannett got it wrong. It took less than a year. Though he'd be the first to admit that the consumer is finally outspending again, and that is a gigantic positive. Shop there as I have. Embrace it. And you'll see exactly what I mean. The Bears blinded themselves to all the positives here in the pursuit of a home run short. And instead, it turned out to be a home run long. Stick with Kramer. little housekeeping first after the close. Jeez, Receptos was bought by Celgene not that long ago, and one of its key drugs really got a big hey. <laughs> Let's just say slap in the face. It's going to hurt that stock tomorrow. Now, we've got a really special show tomorrow. We've got Mark Benioff, the man behind, of course, Salesforce.com, and Kevin Plank. It's a long time he's been on TV. Under Armour, and there you know I think that there is a real turn, and a lot of it is the fantastic team that Kevin Plank has put together. Like I say, there's always a bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. 
Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.